Hello, my name is Haley, and you're listening to Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast that takes a real look at addiction, mental health, and treatment. I'm here with our content director, Jeff, and our medical director, Dr. Bott. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing just fine today. How are you doing, Dr. Bott? Good, Jeff. Haley, how are you guys both? I'm doing great. So what we're going to be talking about today is something that, you know, pretty much everyone has some experience with, and that is alcohol. The National Institutes of Health says that over 85% of American adults have had alcohol at some point in their lives. So, you know, obviously it's something that most of us have tried. And for many people, it's no problem to have a drink at, you know, a dinner or an event once in a while. It's kind of just a social practice that we do. But for a lot of people, you know, alcohol can completely destroy someone's life. And it really is extremely addicting. But you know, it's legal. You, can, you can't drive that far without passing a bar or a store that sells alcohol. So today I wanted to break down why alcohol is so addictive, what its effects on the mind and the body are, and why it's such a problem for so many people. So Dr. Bott, how much of a problem is alcoholism? You know, how prevalent is alcohol abuse in the United States? Yeah, Haley, I mean, comparatively to all of our substance use disorders, alcoholism, alcohol use disorder is the majority. And it is quite prevalent in the country. If we look at at any given moment, um, the actual number of substance use disorders um, at any given time, alcohol use disorders will be by far um, probably up to 75% of them. So it is the most prevalent um, substance use disorder that is out there. Um, Does the age of someone's first drink, like when they start drinking, does that impact someone's chances of developing an alcohol use disorder? Yeah, I think the age that somebody uses any substance that is potentially addictive and habit forming like that, um, yeah, the earlier you use, the increased likelihood or chance you have of potentially developing a um, substance use disorder. So with alcohol, you know, being that it's often something that people try in adolescence and in teenage years, when you use it earlier and more often, uh, if you have additional risk factors, the, the increased likelihood is there. Can you kind of talk about the signs that someone has a problem with alcohol? You know, a lot of people drink and they might, you know, think like, oh, I don't have an issue, but what are those signs? What are some things to look out for? Yeah. And I think this kind of speaks to a lot of other substances too. It's like, you know, when we have behavioral changes, I think that's often one of the biggest signs that we see is that somebody is going to start acting erratically. Now with, with alcohol, there is a, a a big sign that's there. You know, there's a smell that people have so, or you're around there and they, and they get really um, often act quite bizarre and disinhibited and angry or aggressive. So, you know, finding them uh, when they're intoxicated often is, is, is easier to see. But uh, like with other things that are often hidden and subtle, you know, I think one of the biggest things that we see is, is these behavioral changes. Often we can see absences at work. We can see increased mood swings, mood changes. We can see, you know, problems at home or school with responsibilities, uh, increased legal consequences. Somebody gets a DUI or other types of arrests, 
public intoxication. So, you know, often those overt signs are there and those are the most common that are perceived by others. The subtle ones often take a little longer to pick up on. Um, I want to talk about, you know, some of the subtle ones as well. And, you know, for people that haven't had, you know, necessarily any legal issues or like big things like that, um, you know, how much is too much when you're drinking? From a quantity point of view, I think, you know, we, we've established certain guidelines with, you know, the, the CDC and other other organizations that have a numerical value that talk about, you know, what's considered a binge, like, for example, four drinks or more in a setting for women or five or more for men, you know, it's considered heavy drinking or a binge and in a certain amount of time in two hours. But, uh, you know, th- that, th- again, those are more overt. And I think you talked about the, the subtle signs that are there. And often, you know, it is when we see, you know, people's hygiene or, 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 um, taking care of their personal needs, they start to get neglected. You know, those things might not happen overnight. Those are things that might take time and are a little bit more insidious in terms of their onset. But those things might not be picked up quickly. And similarly, like, you know, missing work, it might be transient at the beginning or, you know, being late to pick up your children or, you know, making dinner. And again, I'm not trying to pigeonhole or identify any specific gender or class or position in society. But, you know, these are things that we might not see overtly as we would somebody who's intoxicated. So how much is too much? It really depends on the individual and and, and it depends on what kind of uh, effects are happening to them, both in their, the, in their life and their relationships, but also physically to their bodies. Because sometimes those things that are happening to us physically beyond just a hangover um, are happening within us and we can't see them. So can you kind of explain to me, like, what's going on in the brain of someone who has an alcohol use disorder? You know, when they take their first drink of the night or the day, you know, it seems like they, once they start, they can't stop. You know, what's going on in the brain? It depends on the individual and depends when they're using. That first drink might be something that, um, you know, we we get some level of euphoria or relaxation. And so again, I, I mean, I don't want to get too particular and dis, you know, distinguishing somebody who's drinking for the first time in their life or somebody who's been drinking for years. But in general, most people drink because it's, you know, serves a purpose for them. It's giving them some sort of pleasure, relaxation. Um, you know, with other substances that are addictive, you know, there's an increase in a certain chemical in the brain dopamine that provides uh, pleasure to us and it's it's rewarding and it, it kind of reinforces us doing it again so you know in general when somebody takes that first drink or two drinks they have that tendency to feel calmer uh, feel more relaxed and you know that's often pleasurable to an individual and once it triggers that dopamine rise within the brain and the body that often feels, good and it's rewarding to us uh, we do it again and when often that cycle repeats itself so is that dopamine rise why alcohol is so addictive yes that dopamine is implicated in there but it's not as simple because the the development of addiction is it's a it's a multifactorial process for that for human beings addiction is a it's a complicated construct but uh, in general you know if i can paint that picture when somebody um, 
starts drinking alcohol, if they start in, in, drinking with increased frequency, it starts to affect other chemicals in our brain. And two major ones are um, the GABA and glutamate chemicals. Now, what are those things? You know, GABA is a real significant calming agent in, uh, in it, what we call an inhibitory chemical. Uh, when we drink, it, it goes up and um, helps us have this kind of dulling, chill effect. Um, and then on the other hand, there's this excitatory chemical that keeps us alert, sharp, but and it keeps certain processes active in the brain. Uh, alcohol dulls that. So repeated exposure to alcohol creates, you know, that GABA going up, that calming effect, and that glutamate going down, which also dulls the brain. So that net effect is people's brain starts to turn off. But after time, you know, um, the brain recognizes there's excessive GABA going on from that alcohol exposure. So we kind of, the brain kind of tries to reset itself and turns that GABA down and actually does the opposite with the glutamate, cranks its receptivity uh, up. So when we, when alcohol is no longer there, instead of having a lot of GABA and not enough glutamate, we actually have the opposite. We don't have enough GABA activity and we have too much glutamate activity. So the brain without alcohol is rendered more hyperactive, less calm, and often someone wants to drink again as a result to rebalance themselves. So I'm sorry if I threw out some, you know, technical terms or terms that people aren't familiar with, but in essence, you know, you keep giving something, your brain gets accommodating to it and gets used to it, tolerant to it. And then when you remove it, the brain needs it again. And that often uh, is, is a driver for us to continue to use. Now, multiply this with having a pain condition or an anxiety or depressive disorder that can be either mitigated by adding alcohol, you know, that further reinforces someone to use again, or if they have, you know, genetic predisposition for alcohol use. And I don't want to get into that too much science there, but the point is the other risk factors that are there can increase the you know, probability of using and developing that vicious cycle of um, continued use. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, anxiety and how that makes it worse. Can you explain that a little bit to me? You know, how does alcohol worsen an anxiety disorder? A lot of it is just like what I mentioned about that, that calming chemical GABA and that glutamate excitatory chemical um, without making it too simplified or complicated. But yeah, when we when we drink again, that calming chemical goes up but constant flooding and exposure of that GABA um, when we're constantly drinking or drinking in high amounts and high frequencies, our brain kind of turns it off or turns it down or becomes desensitized to it. Whichever way you want to look at it, there's less GABA activity. So when you stop drinking, there's this lack of calm chemical in your brain. And so for people who suffer from an anxiety disorder uh, who are already dealing with you know, worrying and dealing with problems, um, you know, your brain's being reset to have less chill or calming chemical and it's going on. And so it it almost feels exacerbated. And it it actually is because our body now not only mentally is, is lacking those calming chemicals, but then physically it starts to rebound because our body is calmed by the alcohol. So our heart rate sometimes slow down and our blood pressure you know, um, is lowered. But then when the alcohol is removed, 
the the body responds by um, by compensating to overcome the alcohol. And then when the alcohol is not there, your blood pressure is up. You start sweating. You start um, feeling tachycardic. Your heart racing really quickly. Um, so on top of being anxious mentally, physically, our body's acting like we're running uh, a marathon. So that combined effect uh, is very uncomfortable for human beings. Could you tell me about some of the like long-term physical effects that alcohol has on the body? Alcohol basically is it's 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 toxic to the entire body. There's basically nothing that it doesn't touch within the the body, and it really depending on the individual, it it can create um, damage quickly, or it may take years and years. You know, again, our genetic makeup is different. The construction of each individual is different. So it's hard to quantify and qualify how long it will take. But, you know, studies have shown, the science has demonstrated that, you know, long-term heavy use of alcohol, it's destructive to the brain. It can cause, you know, dementia. It can cause um, problems with our GI system. It can cause bleeding and gastritis. It can cause problems, of course, with our liver. Everybody hears that all the time, that it can cause our liver to get, you know, fibrotic and cirrhosis of the liver. Um, it can cause problems with our, our, our vision. It can cause problems with our blood pressure and our heart and our cholesterol. I mean, there's just, just every possible organ problem that can happen, every system that can be affected by alcohol. And I would just be making a laundry list of, everything bad that can happen to you. Cancers, increase in cancer can happen. Um, so everything from neurological to cardiologic to, you know, um, psychiatric, you know, these, every system is affected from long-term alcohol use. Okay. Can you expand a little bit more on the long-term like mental effects? You know, again, this depends on everybody, uh, individually, you know, um, the relationship that alcohol has with somebody is not known beforehand. And yeah, we can say, okay, somebody who might have a genetic predisposition or family history might have increased risk factors. Yes. But you know, somebody also may be aversive to it because they've seen what alcohol has done. But in terms of, you know, you know, what can happen with, with alcohol, you know, down the road, um, it, it really depends, um, on each person individually. And um, the, 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 the chemical imbalances that occur in, in the brain um, with that GABA and that glutaminergic system and the dopaminergic system affect us mentally very quickly. Um, you know, cause when we drink, you know, that, that GABA depletion after long-term and that glutamate going up, it becomes toxic. So right there, you know, that glutamate goes on overdrive. That excitatory system is actually excitotoxic. So right there, people are in this constant state of hyperarousal and, 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 and anxious and, and feeling uncomfortable. Mixed with the fact that when we often are drinking to that degree of, you know, alcohol use disorder, we act out. We become disinhibited. We make mistakes. We do things that we can't remember. And so when we wake up in that present moment, we're conditioning that sober situation to be um, uncomfortable because we're always thinking, what did I do while I was intoxicated? Um, and, and, and then what do I have to face now in the future? So we end up 
psychologically conditioning, you know, ourselves to be depressed and anxious based on that conditioning, but also uh, physiologically, um, we condition ourselves to be, um, you know, feeling bad and depressed and sad and uh, anxious. And so the mental health consequences, you know, um, are robust. But then again, as this goes on over time, you know, due to nutritional deficiencies or just the toxicity, you know, dementing processes, memory processes, neurological processes happen that, you know, further, you know, um, create negative issues for our, our mental health or mental well-being. Can these issues kind of be made worse if you also like abuse drugs while you drink? Mixing of any substances together, illicit or in the case of alcohol, non-illicit. But yeah, it definitely it's a compounding uh, effect. You know, the, the detriments of, you know, I always say for every action that a drug has, your body's going to want to produce the equal and opposite reaction. So, you know, if something... And, and especially using drugs that have the similar effect, like using alcohol, which is a sedative. Like I said before, it, it calms our brain and slows our body down uh, mentally. If we add um, a, a benzodiazepine, like a, a Xanax or a Valium, and again, not to you know speak anything about these trade name drugs, but the, the bottom line is it, it can cause devastation because the more we, we, we use combined effects that can cause respiratory depression, um, you know, heart, decrease heart rate, and these can lead to coma. They can, these can lead to death. And, um, you know, the, the outcomes are devastating. For somebody that has, you know, severe alcohol use disorder, what would the withdrawal symptoms be like, you know, if they've been drinking every single day and then they, you know, kind of go cold turkey? What happens to the body? So when withdrawal symptoms do start, you know, for those individuals that have become physically dependent, they can start out slowly, such as, you know, um, they, they, they can just be waking up early once the alcohol wears off. They can feel that heart racing. They can become uh, sweat, sweating easily, start to feel um, tremors and shakes. As this goes on after the first few hours, you know, um, this can start leading to some sort of confusion, nausea, vomiting. Um, and then as they go on, they can start having seizures. Um, they can have altered mental status. They can even start hallucinating. They can, you know, start seeing things that aren't there or hearing things that aren't there. And um, people, people can, alter, unfortunately, alcohol withdrawal is life-threatening. People uh, can die. Um, cardiac arrhythmias are something that happens. And there's this kind of like informal thing called holiday heart when people tend to drink often around the holidays and they binge drink and drink um, for a few days in a row. And then when they stop often or while using, they can have a cardiac arrhythmia that can cause, you know, sudden death. So um, yeah, alcohol intoxication in that point, but even alcohol withdrawal in general, it's, it's just, it's, it's a life-threatening situation and should only be done with proper treatment. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's scary. So, you know, if someone is, you know, going to detox from alcohol, what is that process like? Are there things that can make it easier? Are there medications or something? Yeah, there are medications that exist for somebody who is coming off of alcohol. Somebody who's has been identified as having alcohol use disorder and as physically dependent, um, 
that, you know, we don't want to take chances that individuals shouldn't take chances of stopping cold turkey. Um, medications that are sedatives, benzodiazepines and anti-epileptic drugs are often given to help that person slowly, um, you know, come off of that. So basically there's a little bit of a substitution that occurs um, where, you know, medications that act like alcohol or bind to the same receptors are given and they are given at dosages that can hopefully mitigate the withdrawal symptoms. And then they are slowly um, tapered off uh, anywhere from five to 10 days, depending on the severity and um, the presentation of the individual. And usually alcohol withdrawal detoxification is should be done, uh, depending again on the case, um, you know, while supervised by, uh, you know, medical team or physician and nurses, and uh, often is done in a uh, inpatient uh, or residential treatment entity. So for someone who say may be listening to this at home and, you know, they may think like, maybe I do have a problem with alcohol. You know, when, when is that line? When should they seek professional treatment? That That's a hard one for people to, you know, gauge themselves. Cause often when you're suffering with addiction, you're, you're in denial, unfortunately. So for someone to seek it on their own, often, unfortunately happens after negative consequences. So if somebody's seeing this happening in their life or have been told by others, um, you know, and uh, are having problems at work uh, or with their health or with their relationships as a, as a result of alcohol, that's time to seek help. But there's often like, you know, even brief screening questionnaires, you know, like we have a simple one that's used in cl- clinical space uh, called the cage screening. You know, if somebody feels, you know, that they need to cut down, uh, or they, which is C, it's an acronym, you know, the C for, you know, wanting to cut down or feel the need to cut down, or A, if they feel annoyed because of, of somebody talking to them about, you know, their al- alcohol uh, usage, or with the G, if they feel guilty um, due to their alcohol use, and E is if they need an eye opener that they, they wake up in the morning or after their usage, or whatever time it may be, they need alcohol to, um, you know, subside their symptoms of withdrawal you know, that, you know, if they, if they meet any, you know, couple of those, they, they really should um, seek help. You know, that's a quick, easy screening for somebody to know if they have a, you know, a alcohol use problem. So, um, but yeah, it, you know, often it, it's played out in their life. And, um, you know, if they see any of these things happening in any one of these domains, they, they really should seek help. So if somebody wakes up and they, you know, feel hungover from drinking, is that technically withdrawal symptoms? Not necessarily withdrawal. You know, that's, it's, it's often, you know, it can happen in, in the, in the scope of withdrawal, but we've had people that are not physically dependent where, you know, coming off of alcohol is, is, um, withdrawn the first time I have seen people who drink and get intoxicated on two or three events and, and they are going to be having a massive, you know, uh, hangover, but we don't look at just having a hangover as the clinical definition of withdrawal as in what we use in the, in the scientific community for somebody who needs, um, treatment, um, pharmacologically for that. Can you kind of explain to me briefly what the treatment process is like for somebody with an alcohol use disorder? You know, if you, you're at the point when most people, if they have an alcohol use disorder, if they're at a situation where they're using and they know that they've exhibited uh, withdrawal symptoms, I think the first step 
for somebody is to to seek out um, detoxification treatment. So detoxification, as I mentioned, it's 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 the medically supervised and medically managed um, treatment where people are monitored and safely uh, prescribed medications under the you know under the oversight of a medical treatment team to uh, get through those withdrawal symptoms. Um, then you need to engage in the rehabilitative process because one thing is addressing the physical symptoms of coming off of alcohol, but then the underlying addiction that you have to alcohol in the first place. And that takes time. And that is where you engage in, in, in rehab and in therapies and groups, uh, support groups to help, you know, address any of the underlying issues that is, um, you know, existing in someone's life that, um, is causing someone to drink. So how do relapse rates for alcoholism compare to other drugs? Is there a difference? Relapse rates are, are they're, they're quite high. Um, there may be a little bit, um, there are differences between like opioids, for example, and sedatives and alcohol, but it really depends on the demographic uh, of the individual. Um, often uh, we see different relapse rates in, in those that are mandated um, or those which have certain um, stipulations involved in them seeking treatment. We see um, often in uh, pilots or physicians that um, are mandated um, through their employees, uh, employer, I'm sorry, or through the state or, or through the FAA or whatever governing body they have. We see um, better um, recovery rates amongst those individuals. So it really depends on um, the individual and, um, you know, often the circumstances of why they're seeking treatment. A lot of our younger folks sometimes are in and out of um, treatment multiple times before they end up attaining some, um, you know, significant sobriety. So, you know, I, I don't want to give a certain number to that. In, in general, it really depends on um, the individual and, um, you know, a lot of the circumstances around um, them personally. Dr. Bot, is there anything that we didn't bring up today that you think people should know? Alcohol use disorder, uh, binge drinking, um, you know, I, I, we didn't get into a lot of the st statistical stuff, but, um, you know, we've seen certain rates in certain times when certain surveys are done and studies are done that we've seen certain decreases in usages. Uh, but right now, you know, with the pandemic um, and um, what's been going on in society, uh, we've seen such a, uh, we've seen an increase. And in general, alcohol use disorder is such a significant uh, problem in terms of the morbidity and mortality in terms of society and, and around the world. So, you know, it's, it's a big problem. And I think it needs to be addressed in terms of also prevention opposed to reaction and treatment. I think we need as a society to get involved in more, you know, primary prevention of, of, of alcohol use disorders. And it's tough because it's a legal thing. And, uh, you know, when we see it kind of glamorized on television and, and certain reality TV shows or anywhere, you know, and, and people are often think, hey, let's go out to, you know, socialize. And, and, and we, we, we really have glamorized it in society in many different ways. Um, I think, you know, when it's such a uh, financial 
physical societal loss that we have as a result of it. Um, I think we need to be less reactive to it and, and, and more pre- proactive. I think we need to have a community-based and primary prevention type of approach to it. Um, and I think it needs to um, be addressed uh, earlier on. And I know many schools and many public programs are trying to address drug abuse in general, but um, you know it, it's going to take everybody on a systemic level to help address you know what's going on with alcohol too. I also wanted you know to reiterate like how important it is for someone with alcoholism to get help. You know, and not let things get worse than they are because you can turn things around. You know, you don't have to let alcohol have that power over you. Um, if you want to learn more about treatment options and the treatment process or just get a better understanding on alcoholism, addictioncenter.com has a lot of resources for that. You can also check out more podcast episodes online, and we hope to have you next time for another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.